Good morning, everyone. Sometimes we learn best through hearing the stories of others, positive stories that encourage or inspire us, or negative stories that warn us against making serious mistakes. We're into our fourth week of a message series called God Gives Hope, Walking in Justice, Mercy, and Humility. And we're mainly hearing negative stories intended to serve as a warning sign to not do what these people did. We're going through an often ignored part of the Bible, a section called the Minor Prophets, to see how these ancient preachers brought a message of, of God's judgment to their own historical circumstances, and yet at the same time, they also brought a message of God's hope that sort of transcends all history and all time and even applies to our lives today. This morning, we're looking at the prophet Obadiah, and he's going to show us how God's hope is right around the corner. You've probably heard the expression that good things come in small packages, and that's certainly true for someone, you know, hoping for an engagement ring or a gift of expensive jewelry. And sometimes powerful things come in small packages. You mean, uh, like a nuclear explosion comes from the splitting of an atom, doesn't get any smaller or more powerful than that. Or, or take the fantasy superhero Ant-Man. Have you ever heard about Ant-Man? Not one of your more well-known Marvel superheroes, but his superpower is that he can shrink and get small and can get into tight places that others can't. The biblical prophet Obadiah is sort of like that. He is small, but he packs a powerful punch. Obadiah is probably the least well-known of all the prophetic books, and it is one of the shortest in the entire Bible. Only one chapter, only 21 verses. And yet it packs a powerful message and points us toward God's promise of hope in sort of a surprising way. Now I need to set the table again from a historical point of view so that we can understand what Obadiah is, is all about. Knowing the context is always good when you're trying to read and understand the Bible, but it's especially necessary when you're reading the minor prophets. Now all the prophets, the big ones like Isaiah and Jeremiah, and the smaller ones like Hosea and Amos and all the rest, had a strong word of warning for the ancient people of God. Israel had suffered through a, a civil war that split the nation in two. The, the northern half was still called Israel. The southern half was now called Judah. And the main warning to both uh, nations was this. Unless you turn away from your sin, sincerely turn towards God, if you don't stop worshiping these pagan idols, the gods of your neighboring countries like Baal and Moloch, if you don't start honoring the God of your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then God is going to withdraw his hand of protection over your country, and he is going to let other nations just stomp all over you. Now, neither nation, as we've learned, listened to the prophets. So God allowed that northern nation to fall first. The conquest of Israel began in 740 uh, B.C. under Tilgath-Pileser, king of Assyria. His son, Shalmaneser, finished the job in 722 B.C. Israel crumbled under the Assyrians, and they forcibly depopulated the region, dispersed all the northern tribes of Israel all over the ancient world, never to be heard from again. Obadiah comes along 136 years later. Now, he's a prophet of the southern kingdom, Judah, and he lived to recount the terrible downfall of Jerusalem in the year 586 B.C., when Judah was overrun by the Babylonians. Obadiah is both a message of despair and a message of hope. And what is unique about Obadiah is the way his little mini-book weaves time together, almost like a modern science fiction writer. 
he creates a vignette that lives both inside and outside of history. In other words, in Obadiah's mind, time is never just linear, it's actually circular because the past and the future blend together in the tumultuous present. He brings together the events of his own day, which are all bad. He brings those events and weaves them together with events that are coming in the future, which are all good. The time when God will restore his kingdom through the coming of the Messiah. So past, present, and future, it's all mushed together in the same sentence. And that's what makes Obadiah very hard to read. Do you remember the children's story, the great children's story, A Wrinkle in Time by Madeline Lingle? It's a great science fiction tale where a group of children learn how to travel through space and time in order to find one of their fathers. An angel-like figure named Mrs. Whatsit tries to explain to the children how they can learn to travel through time and space. And she uses the image of an ant uh, on a flat string, walking a string. The ant can get from one end of the string to the other by walking its entire length. But if you fold the string and bring the ends together, she shows how the ant can reach the end much more quickly by just simply stepping across the folds in the string. In the same way as the string, Mrs. Whatsit says that time and space are not linear but can actually fold, hence the name a wrinkle in time. And she teaches them to use their minds to fold the fabric of space together to bridge two faraway points. Well, that's what Obadiah was doing in his little book some 2,600 years ago, folding time together. I mean, that's pretty creative for an old guy. So through, though Obadiah was referring to his time period, he's also speaking about our day. Obadiah does not deny history, but he kind of suspends it. In his world, history is a time that has passed, and simultaneously, it's a time that has not yet occurred. Rabbi Peter Tarlow puts it this way. In the smallest of biblical works, the tragedies of what had already happened live side by side with the hopes of an unborn future that, unbeknownst to the people of that period, is already in the process of coming to life. In other words, hope is right around the corner. Now, okay, that's a lot to contemplate on a Sunday morning, especially if you've only had one cup of coffee. But on the simplest level, the book of Obadiah is not about the nation of Judah at all but about God's indictment against another nation, the ancient nation of Edom that bordered Judah to the southeast. So why is Edom so important that God has a whole prophet devoted solely to it? Well, in the Old Testament, your ancestors are really important. Who you descended from, who was your father, your mother, your grandfather, and so on. Your family tree made a difference in what your life was like. And throughout the Old Testament, God was kind of laying out the family tree that eventually would lead to his Messiah. That's why the Gospels of Matthew and Luke both have extensive genealogies, one of Mary and one of Joseph, to show that Jesus was born into the proper lineage of King David, which was the lineage of the coming Messiah. Jesus had the proper pedigree to be that coming Savior. To understand why the country of Edom was so important, we need to know something about its past, its present during Obadiah's time, and Edom's long-range future, past, present, and future. So let's talk about Edom's past for just a second. If we go back to Genesis, we find that to get that family tree started, God chose a man named Abraham to be the father of this lineage that he was creating from which would come God's Messiah. Abraham had a son named Isaac, and Abraham's mantle got passed on to him. In Genesis chapter 25, we learn that Isaac's wife, Rebekah, is pregnant with twins. 
And God says to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One will be the stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. God was referring to her twin boys, Esau and Jacob. Esau and Jacob were in perpetual antagonism. More than just sibling rivalry, we're told that even before they were born, they struggled with each other in Rebecca's room. I mean, poor Rebecca, that was one tough pregnancy. Esau was born first, and so he was entitled to the father's inheritance. But Jacob tricked Esau into selling his inheritance and selling out his birthright and giving it to Jacob instead. As you can imagine, when he finally figured out what happened, Esau wasn't very happy with his conniving brother. So he held a grudge against Jacob. And that antagonism marked their lives, and it sort of got blown up into national size because they both founded nations. Jacob founded the nation of Israel. Esau founded the nation of Edom. So Edom was also a nation descended from Abraham. But the bitterness between those two nations did not stop when Esau and Jacob died. The two nations fought against each other repeatedly for hundreds of years throughout the Old Testament. The animosity ran very deep, lots of blood feuds between the descendants of Jacob and Esau. But now during this time of Obadiah, this would be the last time that they would ever fight against each other. So that was their past, filled with bitterness and rivalry, warfare, and tension. Then there was their present. Geographically, the land of Edom began at the bottom of the Sea of Galilee, what would be today southern Jordan, extended all the way south through the Negev Desert down to the Gulf of Aqaba. The massive city of Petra was one of their strongholds, and I had a chance to visit Petra when Nancy Riscala Hembry and Ted Jordan and I went to Jordan in May of 2017 to tour ministries that were working with refugees from the Syrian war. We had one day to do touristy stuff, so we went to the ancient city of Petra. I, I won't ever forgive that, forget that day because we rode camels, donkeys, horses, all before getting on an airplane for eight hours for the flight home, and that was a big mistake. You never want to ride a donkey or a camel before you get on a plane. The only way to approach Petra is through a mile-long fissure that runs through these rose-red rocks. At some points, it's only about a yard wide. It brings you out into this open space where giant temples were carved into solid rock. One of the Indiana Jones movies was filmed right there. And that was the capital of Edom. And because of these natural defenses, the people of Edom felt like they were invincible, thought that they had this impregnable fortress that they didn't need any help from God. And so pride was their downfall. And when the Babylonians invaded Judah, the armies of Edom were happy to block the southern escape route for the Jews. This is what Obadiah says, starting in verse 10. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their troubles. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of trouble." Edom was so consumed with their hatred that they had against the people of, of Judah that they forgot that they were actually brothers. 
They shed no tears when they saw the nation of Judah fall. But what Obadiah told them was that this would be their downfall too, their pride, the way that they turned their backs on God and, and the chosen people of God. For that, their destruction would soon come. And then there's their future. There was no future for Edom. The Babylonians were picking off the smaller countries one by one, and soon it was Edom's turn. Around 530 or 553 B.C., the Babylonians conquered Edom, drove all its people out of the Middle East forever. The Edomites fled across the Mediterranean as refugees and settled in Greece. And after that, their people and their culture completely disappeared. As a people, they were completely erased from history. And so Obadiah's prophecy came true. Nothing is known about them since then. So the complete was destruction was prophesied by Obadiah. There was no future for them. But there was a future for the people of Judah. In the same breath as he spoke of Edom's destruction, Obadiah spoke of how God would bring a faithful remnant of the people of Judah through all this turmoil. God did not, not give up on his plan to bring the Messiah through Judah. There is a promise of hope and salvation for this remnant of God's people in verse 17. This little glimmer of hope. But on Mount Zion, there will be deliverance. It will be holy, and Jacob will possess his inheritance. In verse 21, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. The hope that Obadiah sees is the future of God's Messiah, that he will establish his kingdom no matter what obstacles the world puts in its way. No matter the national catastrophes, no matter what human kingdoms rise and fall, God has his hand firmly on the rudder of human history, and God's kingdom will come. Psalm 22, verse 27 says the same thing. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over all the nations. All the proud of the earth will feast and worship, and all who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Sometimes the Bible teaches us by positive example, showing us what we should do and how we should live. In Obadiah, God is teaching us again through negative example. You know, we all have a past, a present, and a future. And the main message is don't be like Edom. Don't be like them. Don't let your past be like their past. Don't let your present be like their present. And please don't let your future be like their future. Instead, flip that around and consider the positive side. What is the, what is the hopeful expectation the Messiah brings to us? Now, to us who live on the other side of the cross, what can the hope of Christ actually bring to your past and to your present and to your future? Well, think of that word hope with me for just a minute. First, the hope of Christ, it can heal our past experiences. Heal our past experiences. When we look at our past, we think about what we have done or maybe what others have done to us. None of that can be changed. We can't travel through time and go back and, and make anything different. We have to deal with what is, not what we wish it would have been. In our own behavior and in how others behave towards us, what is Christ's solution to your past? Well, it's forgiveness. Wash, sins like scarlet shall be white as snow, Isaiah 8. God says, come, let us settle this. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them white as snow. They are, though they are red like crimson, I will make them white as wool. Through Christ, we're offered forgiveness for our sin, 
for all the ways that we went against God, for all the things that we did to, to damage ourselves or the things that we did that damaged others. A clean slate, brand new, fresh snow, a cosmic do-over because of what Christ did when he went to the cross on our behalf. When he took the penalty of our sin and the separation from God that we deserved, he, he addressed our past through his shed blood. First Peter 1, 18. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. That's what Jesus does for your past. And then he says, you do the same for others. The only way to deal with the hurts and the harm of the past in your life is through forgiveness. Jesus said, follow my example. As I have forgiven you, now you have to go and forgive others. That's how you close the circle on the past. You, you take what you've received from Jesus, and you now extend that same grace to others. And that's why he taught us to pray. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you, Ephesians 4.32. Don't be like Edom and Judah that nursed the grudge, fanned the flames of hatred for decades. Let Christ heal our past experiences. And then Christ can handle our present enemies. Handle our present enemies. Enemies With Christ in your life, when you, when you know that you've been forgiven and, and, and you're learning to forgive, you also recognize you can't do that on your own. You can't face your current problems on your own power. You need God's wisdom. You need God's guidance. You need a supernatural influx of, of patience and kindness and power, and through his spirit, that is available to you. Christ is with you in your present, and no matter what enemies you may face, he is there to be your rock and your solid foundation. Jesus made a great promise. He said, I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. And so with that promise of his presence, we can, we can say, like with the Apostle Paul, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Philippians 4.13. With Christ in our lives, we can handle our present enemies. And finally, for our future, Edom's future got canceled. But Obadiah saw hope for the remnant people of Judah. And now on our side of the cross, we see that hope coming into reality through Christ. And for us, Christ holds out the promise of eternity. Holds out the promise of eternity. We have a secure future in Christ. Jesus said it this way, John 14. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Jesus knows that we all have anxious thoughts about what comes next, what comes after this life. And so he clearly lays out for us what our future will look like after we leave this world. When we leave this world, he will be there to welcome us into the next. We will step across our wrinkle in time and follow in the path that he has already traveled on our behalf. He prepared the way, his empty tomb, his resurrection victory, his transcendent glory. All those show us why we can have hope for the promise of eternity. Because he's already there and he's already prepared the way for us. Praise God for that promise. The word from Obadiah is simple. Don't be like Edom 
Instead, flip it. Flip whatever they did and do the opposite. And in that way, we can experience the great hope of Christ, who can heal our past experiences, who can handle our present enemies, and who holds out the promise of eternity. That's the hope that we have through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this little bitty book tucked into the Old Testament. 21 verses, but what a powerful message it has of warning against pride and against self-sufficiency, against turning against God's purposes, but also this little glimmer of hope that he gives for the future when the Messiah will begin his kingdom, Lord. And we thank you that we can have hope in you for our past, our present, and our future because we know that you're a God who keeps your promises and your word is true. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.